0: Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that, le- that I ever did. Can, can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. We can go to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his words. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed the Savior of the world.
1: If you're not already there, please turn with me to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on or look at the announcement sheet you'll see the scripture printed there uh, before you uh, welcome back to RUF my name is Jason Sterling I'm the campus minister if you're a first time uh, if this is your first time to RUF I want to especially welcome you and let you know we're so glad you're here and I would love to meet you and so thank you last week we had several people come up and introduce themselves and that was awesome so I'd love to meet you if you're new and get to know you uh, and so please do that after RUF I heard a story, or read a story a few years ago in Christianity Today. It was an article about adoption from Russell Moore. He is a seminary professor at Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he and his wife have an adopted son from the former Soviet Union. And they talk about when they went on one of their required trips to adopt their son about their experience. And he said he walked into the orphanage and he said the stench and the smell was absolutely horrible. That almost made him physically sick, but he said that wasn't the most horrible thing about it. He said the horror of walking into the orphanage was actually the quiet of it all. He said it was more quiet than a funeral home at night. He said, as they're walking down the hall, at one point, it was so quiet that he grabbed his wife's arm and says, what is happening in here? Why is it so quiet? This place is full of babies, and it's completely quiet. And he said, if you listened carefully enough, you could hear babies rocking back and forth, and you could hear the slats from the crib hitting up against the wall. The reason why there were no children crying was because... Infants, when no one responds to their cries for love or comfort or food, then they completely shut down and stop crying. And that's what had happened. No one had ever responded to them, and so they stopped. And then he talks about the silence that continued as he walked into his future son's Room, and he walked up to the crib and he said that during the visit they were there for several days they would come at an appointed time and he said we would read to him we would pray with and for him we would sing to him we would tell him how much we loved him and we would tell him uh, that we were coming for him and we would hug him nothing no cry not even a whimper or a groan. And he said it came time for them to leave, and they were going back to the United States because they had to finish up some paperwork before they returned to bring their son home for good. And so they walked out of his room, and they're walking down the hall, and he said that they shook with tears over the sadness of having to leave their son. He said, that's when it happened. As they're walking down the hall, he said they heard the loudest scream that they had ever heard in their life. And their son had fallen back in the crib and let out the loudest guttural yell that you have ever heard. It was as if he knew that for the first time, maybe, that his cries would be heard. He knew deep down that there was someone that loved him and cared for him. Why do I begin with the story? Well, because I believe it's such a good picture of John chapter 4. Because in this story, we have a woman who has essentially shut down because she's all alone and no one cares for her. She's full of shame and full of guilt and yet jesus moves towards her and loves her and cares for her in a way that she's never been cared for in her life and she experiences the love of jesus and in a sense if you followed along with the reading by the end of the story she lets out in a sense a guttural yell as she goes back into her village And talks about what Jesus has done for her and how he has loved her and given her new life. We're going to see that in our passage when we study it tonight. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, we ask that you would come uh, and be near to us. We need you and we need your spirit to take this word and to apply it uh, to our hearts lord i pray that we would be encouraged uh tonight that we would uh, sense that only true and lasting satisfaction and happiness can be found in you would you convince us of that fact and would you also remind us tonight of the incredible love that you have for us would you do these things in jesus name amen If you were here last week, uh, we've been continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and last week we were in John chapter 3, and we talked about the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, and if you recall, Nicodemus was a highly moral insider. He was a mover and a shaker, well-connected, he was wealthy, he was a ruler, Uh, he knew his Bible. Uh, He had great community. He was a leader in his community. Well, tonight in John chapter 4, we see the complete opposite. We see a woman who is an outsider. She's a religious outsider, she's a moral outsider, and she's a social outsider. Translation, she is an outcast. And John, if you look and notice in His gospel puts these two people side by side for a purpose. Because John actually wants us to take them together. Why? Well, because John wants to teach us something about Christianity tonight. And he wants us to take them together because here's what he's trying to show us. That though there couldn't be two people more different than Nicodemus and this woman their need is exactly the same. At the deepest level, they both need Jesus. In John chapter 4, Jesus, or John, introduces us to a woman, and if you noticed as we read, he doesn't even give us her name, but here's what we do know. She is not one of us. No, she's an outcast. She's In all the wrong social circles. She's at the bottom of the barrel. And people wanted nothing to do with her. She's been used and she's been beaten. But friends, we have a lot to learn from her tonight. A lot to learn about what Christianity is. And about what the gospel is all about. We learn three things from her about the gospel in Christianity. And we learn it as we look at her background, as we look at her questions. We have an outline there. And from looking at her response. Background, questions, and response. Let's look at number one. Her background. To really get the sense of how remarkable this passage is, and the interaction that takes place between Jesus and this woman, we've got to understand a couple of things. First of all, we need to understand that she's a Samaritan. Why is that such a big deal? Well, let me just put it real bluntly and get right to it, because there's a long history there. But very simply put, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And so she's blown away that he would even initiate a conversation with her in the first place, not to mention it was scandalous for a man in that culture, a Jewish man, to talk to a strange woman in public. That's the first reason. Secondly, we learn something about the woman from this little phrase in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It was the sixth hour. What does that mean? Well, it meant that it was high noon when this was taking place. And so the question is why in the world would this woman go in the hottest part of the day to the well to draw water all alone? Well, we quickly realize that she's a moral outcast as you read the story. She's a complete outsider within her own community back then it was actually a community or social event for women to go get water from their village so they would go with lots of other women at the earliest part of the morning or at the end of the day because it was cool and they didn't have the sun beating down on them and they would go with other women and gather water for their families and for their animals but notice the samaritan woman That's not what she's doing. She's alone, and she's at the hottest part of the day because she wants to be unbothered by other people. And as the conversation progresses in the story, we understand why, don't we? She's the town tramp. She was known for her immorality. And more than likely, she had gone with other women before. And she was looked down upon and talked down to and treated very hatefully. And she didn't want to endure the shame. And she didn't want to endure the guilt. And so she just stopped. And she started going alone when no one else would be around. And notice what Jesus does here. Jesus deliberately reaches across every significant barrier. He reaches across racial and cultural and gender and moral barriers in order to connect with her, reach out to her, and care for her. And in doing so, Jesus teaches us something about Christianity. That at the very heart of Christianity is a breaking down of walls that exist between us and other people. At the very heart of Christianity is a moving not away from, but towards people that aren't like us. Moving towards people that are broken and messy. And then the question becomes, how in the world does that start to happen in our own lives? How do we start to break down walls and move towards people that aren't like us? Or people that are hard to love that are all around us. <clears throat> well, you've heard me say this, these kinds of things before, but really we have three options. We can basically say, I want to be a good Christian, and that's what good Christians do. So I've got to suck it up, grit my teeth, and I've just got to go love that person because that's what Jesus told me to do. And if you do that that probably will last for about a week and then you'll be bitter and angry and there will be no joy in that. Trust me, I know, because that's the way I've lived half my life. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you can say, "Ah, that's just way too hard. That's way too uncomfortable for me to move towards people like that, so I'm out and I'm just going to forget about it and ignore that that's even mentioned in the Bible. And we all see the problem with that. So then how do we do it? Well, There's a third way, and it's the way of the gospel. Because the gospel, friends, is the power and the motivation for us to love our neighbors and those around us. And Jesus comes, and the gospel comes, and says that the only way you and I will ever move towards outsiders and people that aren't like us is when we identify ourselves with this woman. Friends, this is you. This is me. You know, oftentimes in this story, we put ourselves in the position of the Samaritan, or in the position of Jesus, and we're evangelizing. No, 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 no. We're the Samaritan woman. (laughs) Deeply thirsty and deeply in need of a Savior. And when we realize that that is us and that we would be the outcast. That we are full of shame and guilt if it weren't for Jesus' compassion and grace in moving towards us when we were dead in our sins, as the Bible teaches. And when we start to identify ourselves with this woman and see the incredible grace of Jesus towards us in our own lives, you know what will happen? It will melt away our heart. And we'll start to change. And we'll start to move towards people with compassion and grace and love. Friends, Jesus was a magnet for the outcast. They flocked to him. You look all throughout the Gospels and you see they loved him because there was something so winsome about Jesus that it made people that weren't doing it right feel right at home. And so here's a question. How do people that aren't like you, that are living different lifestyles than you, how do they feel around you? Do they feel safe? Or do they feel that they must be on their best behavior for fear that they're not doing it right and fear that you will leave them, push them away, and reject them? That's the first thing. We see we learn something about the gospel, about Christianity from looking into the background of this woman. And secondly, we learn something from her questions. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus does what he always does. is Notice he never pulls punches. He goes right to the heart of the thing in the person's life that is holding them back from following him wholeheartedly. And he does that with this woman. Look at those verses. He says, Everyone who drinks of this water meaning the water at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst because the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What in the world does that mean? Here's what Jesus is saying in short. Jesus is saying that I can give you, I can put inside you A lasting satisfaction that goes all the way to the core of your being and is there regardless of circumstances and what happens on the outside of you. That's what he means. Look at verses 16 through 18. He exposes the woman's sin. He says, Go call your husband. And she responds, I have no husband. And he says, that's right, you have five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And you're thinking, whoa, Jesus, that's a little harsh. Why in the world would you respond to her that way? I thought you were loving her. He is loving her. He's not being shameful to her. Jesus, here's what he means and the reason he responds that way. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand this water this living water that I am offering you, then you've got to understand where you've been seeking it in your own life. And he shows her and reveals that she's actually been seeking it in men and in the arms of other other lovers. And he says, it's not working for you. In fact, it's eating you alive and it will never stop. You see, everyone... Jesus is saying here is living for something, but Jesus is arguing that if He is not the thing, then it will abandon you, and it will fail you at the end. And as I was, as I was studying, I was reminded of the sixty minute interview a couple of years ago with Tom Brady. It's worth looking up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. But Tom Brady is an NFL quarterback for the New England Patriots. And he just signed a few years ago a $60 million contract over 10 years. He has three Super Bowl rings and he's married to a supermodel. And in the interview, and and it was, it was, interesting because the person doing the interview, you could tell that they were actually shaken visibly by his response. And listen to what he says. He says, I have everything that I've ever wanted. I have three Super Bowl championships. I have a beautiful wife. And he said, yet I still feel that there's something more. It's not enough. And it gets those comments get right at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, yes, unless I am at the center of your life and unless you go to me to get your thirst quenched and unless you go to me for satisfaction and fulfillment, then the thing that you are running to, if it is not me, it will fail you. It will abandon you. And it will actually eat you alive from the inside out. So here's my question. Think about your life right now. Where are you running and going to, other than Jesus, to get your thirst quenched? What wells are you going to in drawing water from? Well, some of you, maybe it's like the woman in the passage. And you're trying to get your thirst quenched from relationships. And so your life looks like bouncing from one relationship to another. You get in one relationship, it ends, and in a matter of days, you're right back in another one. Because you're saying, I am thirsty, and that's where I'm getting my thirst quenched. Or maybe some of you, you go and you're getting your thirst quenched from the compliments of others. Your whole life is built around getting other people's approval, whether it be from a guy or a girl or a friend group or from a teacher or from a family member. And so you build your life on trying to suck compliments and approval out of other people. And you know that that doesn't do it because that quickly ends, and you find yourself the next week going right back to the same thing and doing things and saying things in order to guarantee a compliment. You're dying of thirst, and you deeply want to be satisfied. But some of you, I I realize that you are absolutely haunted by your past. And you think, oftentimes, when you're lying awake in the middle of the night, you're thinking, if I would just have made better decisions, I wouldn't be in this place and my thirst would be quenched. If I would just have done this thing or that thing, then things would be good for me and I wouldn't be here. And what you're saying is that if I could just have the perfect life, my thirst would be quenched and I would be good. If my life were better. No. Think about Nicodemus. You and I would look at Nicodemus, and if you were here last week, we'd look at him and we'd say, he's the man, he's got it together. But Jesus said he was still thirsty because he was not going to Jesus to get living water. Friends, Jesus says to every single one of us tonight that unless we go to him for living water, then we're going to live in a constant state of dehydration. Then we're going to live in a constant state of thirst because only in Jesus can we truly be satisfied and have the thirst quenched at our deepest level. The gospel we see here. We learn something from her background, from her questions, and lastly, her response. Hands down, my favorite part of the passage. I don't know why, but I just, I love this. 28, look at verses 28 with me, and then 39 and 42. I love her response. She leaves her water bucket at the well and she runs as fast as she can. To the village, think about this the village that she has been shamed, that she is an outcast in, so much so that she goes alone to the well. And she marches straight into the middle of that village and she says, Come with me and come see this guy, Jesus, who told me everything about myself. Could he be the one? Could he be the Christ? Come. Think about that for a second. How in the world is she able to do that? With all of her guilt and all of her shame that led her to avoid everyone that she came in contact with, now is able to march straight into the heart of the village and say, Jesus told me all my embarrassing stuff how does that happen in a person's life how did it happen in her life i'll tell you she knew she had the smile of the only person in the world that really mattered it reminded me of a story i heard recently from a good friend of mine nathan turkweek he's a pastor in memphis now but he was a former ruf campus minister and he tells this story about when he went to liberty land several years ago. Anybody, Memphis people remember Liberty Land? Yes, okay. Uh, it closed actually in 2005 for a financial reason, but it was an amusement park. And my friend went to Liberty Land, and it was a hot summer day, and he's riding all the rides. He's with his family. Uh, he's exhausted, tired, and hot. And all he could think about was getting in front of those, one of those mist machines, you know, that blows out the cool mist and it's really refreshing So he was searching the park to find one and he finally found a mist machine and he came walking up on it and he noticed all these people huddled around it, but particularly he noticed a group of teenage boys that were there and he said everyone kind of appeared to be laughing and making fun of something and he didn't really know what it was and so he kind of made his way through the the crowd of people and he looked and under the mist machine was a father and on his shoulders was his little girl. And she was laughing, and they were having the time of their life, and he said there was some water underneath that kind of pulled up and they were playing in it. But these boys were laughing, and he got a closer look, and the little girl turned around and he noticed that she was severely deformed. And that's why they were laughing. And he was indignant, he said, on the inside, and he didn't know what to do, and he was trying to think: should I say something to them? How do I handle this situation? And then he looked back at the girl, and he said, she's smiling from ear to ear. She's having the time of her life. She doesn't care what anyone else around her thinks. Why? Well, because she had the smile of the only person in her world that really mattered. She had the smile of her daddy, and that was enough for her that's the woman at the well she had the smile of jesus she knew that jesus approved of her she knew that jesus loved her and so she was able to go right into the heart of the city with confidence and tell them what jesus had done for her she had finally met a man who knew her all the way to the bottom knew the sexual abuse knew the sexual sin, knew the physical abuse, knew the guilt, and knew the shame in her life, and he didn't leave her or hurt her. But instead, moved towards her with compassion and love and gave her true and lasting life. How does that happen? How do we get to a place Like that. How do we get there? Well, John chapter 19, you can write this down. It blew me away. I actually learned this this week. I'd never noticed this before. But in John chapter 19, John is writing about the crucifixion of Jesus. And you know what he says as he's describing the scene of the crucifixion? It was about the sixth hour. Have you heard that before? It was high noon. It was the heat of the day. And Jesus is hanging on a cross in the scorching sun. And there's silence. And out of the silence, Jesus cries out something. You can read it in John chapter 19. And you know what he says out of the silence? You know what he cries? I thirst. I thirst. And he meant in that moment more than physical thirst. Because in that moment on the cross, Jesus was experiencing the loss of his relationship with his father because he was getting the punishment for our sin that we deserved. He took it upon himself and on the cross... He was cut off from his father. In other words, he was cut off from the true source of living water. And I love what Keller says. It can only be said in a way that Keller can put it. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, he says on the cross, Jesus experienced cosmic thirst so that your spiritual thirst could always be satisfied. Friends, I don't know where you are spiritually. But if you are a Christian tonight in this room and you believe in Jesus, the verdict is already in on you. You know what that means? That means that you and I don't have to go to relationships and look for smiles. We don't have to go to our GPA. We don't have to go to our body image to look for favorable verdicts and smiles. We do not have to go to popularity and our achievements and our success. Why? Because we have the verdict of the only one that really matters Jesus. And you know what he says? You're beautiful, you're accepted, you're successful, and you're loved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the same for everyone. Same for the insider as it is for the outsider. It's the same for the skeptic and everyone in between. Friends, that's an invitation.